A few hours ago, I discharged my last duty as king and emperor. But I have found it impossible to carry the heavy burden of responsibility and to discharge my duties as king as I would wish to do without the help and support of the woman I love. Welcome to Monarchast. We're talking all things royalty, monarchy, and British today, I guess. Um, I'm Allie. I'm Claire. And today we're jumping a little bit further back in time to talk about something we've briefly alluded to in our Queen Elizabeth series, the abdication and romantic woes, I guess, of Edward VIII. Yes, the Edward problem. Yes, because it was a big problem for everybody. We thought this would be a good one to go back to. We talked about Queen Elizabeth. We talked a little bit about um, Princess Margaret and why she couldn't get married. And uh, we talked about how attitudes have changed. But I think this is a really good one to jump into now because this very short reign is the reason behind all of those issues. Yes, and also the heart of the matter was once again divorce. Yes. They really didn't like divorce. Well, you know, I think I think I was when I was looking through all of the materials on this one, it struck me that it had a little bit of a parallel to the Henry VIII stuff when, you know, he he just wanted to get rid of one wife and get another one. And the hoops that he had to jump through, and this was kind of an opposite situation where Edward, you know, certainly wasn't married already, but he he wanted a specific woman to be his wife, and no one was willing to let him jump through the hoops to get there. Right, and I think the difference being because he wasn't king, so right. not not yet. And well, he was though, and we'll get into that. Well, so. we will, but but when the crisis started, he wasn't. But also, I think it's a question of, uh, you know, the presumed future leader of the Church of England and head of the British royal family, who in those capacities is both supposed to be the, you know, righteous leader of, you know, the English church and also the, you know, sort of moral head of England, you know, engaging with someone at the time that was considered, you know, by being divorced to have been engaged in immoral behavior so what does that mean? But yeah, we'll get into it. There's a lot to cover. Um, just for a little bit of background, Edward VIII did reign as King of England for 326 days, mm-hmm. although he was never actually crowned. So basically he was king by virtue of the fact that he was the Prince of Wales. His father died. He was proclaimed king, but he was never crowned. And he wasn't even on the throne for a year. But even though we're only talking about 326 days, there is a lot to unpack here. 
Well, so, because we're not talking just about the days where he reigned, right? Like there was a lot of this happening before his father died, right? Like everybody knew was. this was a crisis in the making. Yeah, and, and we can jump in. You know, I think we were just talking before we started. We don't really have any great gossip. So but. I'm going to just jump in here because, like I said, there's a lot to unpack. I do want to say that for this particular topic, there is a lot of really good information out there. There are several books that have been written. He himself wrote a few memoirs. Um, I didn't actually read those because I find, especially in the case of someone like this, who's personality was such that he viewed himself quite differently than the rest of the world. I, I didn't think we'd be getting a very fair assessment if I went that route. Right. And same with Wallace. She wrote an autobiography as well, but she was widely considered to have a loose relationship with the truth. So yeah, it, it probably not the best like source re- material. It didn't seem like a reliable narrator. No. So I relied on, um, there's a really great biography series on the royals that's done by Penguin Books. And this one is part of that series and it's called Edward VIII, The Uncrowned King. And it's by Piers Brendan. And um, it's, it's a really great, if not, or I should say it is somewhat sympathetic, but it, I, I thought it was a pretty good distillation of his life and I also watched an Amazon documentary called and I'm laughing because it was pretty intense um it was or at least it was available on Amazon Prime and it's called the Edward VIII the Traitor King um and as the title might suggest that little docuseries took quite a heavy-handed view of him as a traitor during World War II there was one gentleman who flat out said multiple times he was a traitor. So I think between the two, we're going to get a pretty balanced picture going on here. (laughs) I want to add that I also read a book that was focused more on Wallace um, called Wallace in Love. And it was somewhat sympathetic, but also not sympathetic exactly to her. So I think it was a pretty balanced view of just her approach to the relationships in her life in general. And if you can view that lens to see her, her approach to Edward, you know, and or David as she knew him. And we'll get into some of that. So let's just jump in. Um, so Edward Albert Christian George Andrew Patrick David. Oh, oh my. <laughs> that is <laughs> that quite is, a name to be saddled with. That is his full name. He was born on June 23rd, 1894 at White Lodge, Richmond Park, which was the home of his maternal grandparents, the Duke and Duchess of Teck. Um, His father was George V, and his mother was Mary of Teck. She was a German princess, but she was raised in England, Um, and at the time, they were the Duke and Duchess of York. Uh, Edward, we're going to call him Edward. Sometimes he might be referred to as David because David was what the family called him, but I think for our purposes, we're going to stick with Edward. And that was, in fact, going to be his regnal name, and he is known as Edward VIII. Um, He was the great-grandson of Queen Victoria. So his grandfather was Edward VII, who was Queen Victoria's eldest son, and George V was his son. So at the time, his parents, when he was born, his parents were the Duke and Duchess of York. His grandfather was the Prince of Wales. I, we, again, are going to have to go and do a little series on the titles because I had never realized that you could 
have a situation where you have the Prince of Wales being the father and the Duke of York being the son. Usually it's two brothers. I think it depends on whether anybody's currently occupying that title. I like think I think you're traditionally right. the Duke of York is the second in line to the throne behind the Prince of Wales if that title is not already taken. Like at the moment the Duke of York is Prince Andrew, so Harry wouldn't be the Duke of York. But if say um, Elizabeth had only had one son, Charles, and there was no other living Prince of York, perhaps William might have been the Duke of York. Yeah, that's I think my you're assumption. Right. It's it's pretty interesting. So we're gonna we're we're gonna get to that one day. But anyway, when he was born, he was third in line to the, to the throne. So maybe we'll just leave it there. And he he received a pretty what we would call a pretty Victorian upbringing, meaning that his parents were pretty far removed from the daily. Uh, child rearing um, and he was pretty much raised by nannies and as a result he was never very close with his parents but he was apparently smart he took a little but he didn't take very much of an interest in his studies he wasn't much of a bookworm as a result of his birth he received a pretty typical upper class education meaning that by the time he was a teenager he'd been shipped off to the naval college because as a Prince of the United Kingdom, um, he was expected to have some something of a military career. And so that was pretty typical of the time. But his studies were interrupted by the death of Edward VII on May 6, 1910, and George V took the throne. And shortly thereafter, David was invested as the Prince of Wales. And that also came with it the very wealthy Duchy of Cornwall. So at this point in his life, he became a pretty wealthy man, and he was pretty good at collecting wealth. He spent his money, but he was also very good at saving and figuring out ways of making more money. So at this time in his life, he was he was set up pretty well for success. And what he did, eventually he continued on to Magdalen College, which is in Ox- Oxford, um, where he, again, not that book smart, but um, by all accounts, he was a pretty much a hit with his schoolmates. He was kind of a pain. He would, you know, tell people, don't, don't stand for me. Don't stand for me. And then when they wouldn't stand for him, he would chastise them and say, why aren't you standing for me? I'm the Prince of Wales. But he was also really good looking. He was charismatic. So he was pretty popular despite some of his perhaps personality flaws. He was sporty. He smoked, he gambled, he drank, and he pretty much raised hell while he was at college, uh, I say, I'd say again, pretty typical of a young man of the time. And what ended up happening, he, he was born at a pretty interesting time in history, and so he lived through not one but two world wars, and the first one was World War One, which broke out in 1914. And he was unfortunately prevented from fighting in a combat role because the fear was that he would die or be captured, and that would be devastating for the royal family to have the Prince of Wales die in war. But he was sent to France on staff jobs, and he occasionally would get a touch of warfare, uh, trench warfare specifically. He he did spend a little bit of time on the front lines, but overall he was shuffled off to the side and was pretty much pushing paperwork. And as a result, he was miserable and felt useless. But he is credited with boosting military morale and strengthening alliances. Um, Even at this time, he was a very popular figure. The soldiers loved him. The public loved him. They sent him to Italy in 1917 to help boost morale. And 
He made a diplomatic trip to Rome, which was a success, even though um, it's reported he referred to the Pope as a dirty little priest and called the people ice creamers. So we're starting to get a sense of the dichotomy between his public and private life. Publicly, it was very much a success. Privately, he was whining in private about how much he hated the Italians. Um, now, they, do you think that's because they eat gelato? I think so. I think that's where the ice creamers came from. But What's the point wrong is with him? Gelato was, is delicious. Well, the point <laughs> is he didn't think they had anything else to offer the world. He was pretty flippant. He didn't have a lot of respect for foreigners. He he was really, really snobbish to the extreme. But nevertheless, Racist. by the end of the war, he'd earned the title Prince Charming. Um, after the war, he continued to be involved in enhancing loyalty to the crown throughout the empire. Um, but secretly, he had started at this point to lead a life that was pretty much dominated by women and partying. So for his 20s, he spent that time traveling the Commonwealth, and charming the people. Um, his father at this time started to get a little worried about his playboy ways, and he complained to the queen that Edward was dancing every night and most of the night and feared that the people who don't know him will begin to think he is either mad or the biggest rake in Europe. Um, but the people that didn't know him actually considered him to be quite glamorous, and he was also considered at this time to be the most eligible man on earth. He's the party prince. He was. He was a party prince. And it was, it, it, it's really interesting when you look at this, the biographies, the public just saw him as this glamorous figure devoted to his family, really loyal to his country. And privately, he was just partying and drinking and having affairs with married women. And it, it, they just had no idea. And, and we'll get a little more into that. But he was so irresponsible at one point that his secretary, um, Tommy Lascelles, good old Tommy, we, we mentioned Tommy. him. He served Queen Elizabeth as well, as, and as well as George VI. Um, he was driven to resign because he was so infuriated by the way the prince was conducting himself. He actually said, and I quote, he was on his way to becoming no fit wearer of the British crown. And the Prime Minister Stanley Baldwin also agreed with him. He also agreed when LaSalle said it would be the best thing for the country if the prince broke his neck. Because at the time, the prince was like very into steeplechasing, apparently. Yes. As a sport. And so I think some people were privately hoping before they made him stop that he would just have an accident. <laughs> yeah. I mean, at this point, you're starting to see privately the courtiers and the high-ranking members of government are starting to get a bit worried. Um in any case, in 1936, George V died and Edward became king. Courtiers were immediately concerned. He was impatient with court protocol. He had a disregard for constitutional conventions. And the last development was his desire to marry what was deemed an unsuitable bride. And all of this culminated in the fact that on December 10th, 1936, he abdicated and became the Duke of Windsor. And his younger brother, Prince Albert, became George VI. So that is a quick rundown of his life up to the abdication. I just wanted to throw a lot of those in there because I think his service in World War I, the way that he treated people around him, his party ways are going to all play a role as we discuss the, the problem itself, the abdication. And this is a big deal, right? I mean, we're not talking about someone who said... I don't feel ready for this. Maybe I need a little bit more time. I mean, he turned down the throne of England. He 
shook the monarchy to its core. Right. He, he said, like, no, I'm not going, I'm not going to seize my birthright, my divine destiny. I'd, and I'd rather not. Because previously, up until this point, the only way a younger brother usually became king was because the older brother died unexpectedly. Like, I think even, um, was it Edward VII who also was uh, second in line and then his George brother died? The George, George V. George V. Okay, so, um, so his son then. Okay, so, um, so Edward's own father then. Um, yep was not expected to be king, but his older brother died. And so he then um, was next in line. And so it wasn't unheard of for this to happen, but it usually was not because the one in line wanted, just didn't want to do it. Yeah. So like that was considered like, you know, you're born into this family. It's not really your choice, but it's your familial duty to head this family. Like you don't get a choice. Usually. Usually, yes. <laughs> and, and, and I mean, we, we'll, we'll talk about the aftermath at the end here, but I mean, we're, the monarchy still feels the effects of this abdication almost 100 years ago at this point very strongly. I mean, this, this had a shockwave ripple effect well into the 20th and 21st centuries. Um, so there's a few reasons we can discuss about the monarchy. The most famous reason, I mean, sorry, the abdication, (laughs) the most famous and most pressing reason. And the one that I think most people associate with the abdication is Wallace Simpson. So Edward met Wallace Simpson in 1934. This is two years before he abdicated. She was Born Bessie Wallace Warfield in Pennsylvania in 1896. She married her first husband, Earl Winfield Spencer, at the age of 19. Their marriage was pretty rocky. He was an abusive alcoholic. Uh, But even with all their marital problems, she did follow him to Hong Kong, where he was stationed. He would make her accompany him to sing-song houses. I'm not really sure what that is. I gather it's some kind of brothel or... In, yeah, in a I decent place to take your wife, at, at the very least. Um, and he would openly engage with the girls there. And this actually contributed to later rumors that Wallace possessed exotic sexual techniques that she used to enthrall Edward. Um, but more likely it was her husband being abusive towards her and it led to her first divorce. After her first marriage, she met and married Ernest Simpson in 1928, who was half English and took her to London. This is how she ended up in London. She openly admitted to her mother when she married him that she was only marrying him for the money and security. And and that's what she got. By 1929, she was established on the London social scenes. She was hosting parties. And that's where she she actually met, I I should say, she actually met the Prince of Wales in 1931. But initially, he was not very impressed by her, um, even though he did eventually come to admire her confidence and style and the fact that she she was pretty seemingly unimpressed by his title because she was an American. So she didn't have the natural ingrained respect for his position that his fellow countrymen had. By 1933, the Simpsons were regular guests at his home, uh, known as Fort Belvedere, and he often visited their flat. So by this time, rumors were starting to spread about this relationship. And by 1934, she and Dad, Edward were definitely having an affair. 
Um, he had several other mistresses when he met her, um, and at this time, he essentially dismissed them. He barred access to his home. He told them to stop calling him. He left all the women in his life and focused only on Wallace, who, by the way, was still married. Um, he began to shower her with jewelry, and he even took her on holiday without her husband. I think mm-hmm. they took her aunt along, but it was still pretty shocking that he would take another man's wife on vacation. Yeah, so I I want to mention, because I, I was reading this book about Wallace and her approach to her relationships, and it was actually really interesting. Like, you know, she married first extremely young. She was 19, and he did become an abusive alcoholic, and they um, were living in California and eventually separated. And she initially went to China because she had already gone to France. Like, she was basically in pursuit of a cheap divorce, which was very expensive at the time and hard to come by. Um but she thought, hey, I'll just go to China. Why not? Uh, perhaps she had another boyfriend who was also stationed in China. And she spent a lot of time there relying on, you know, the kindness of others to for a place to live, for her clothes, for shopping money, for all of that. So I think when she finally was divorced and she found Simpson, you know, this appeal of a secure lifestyle, like she really wanted that because she had been spending the last few years trying to get a divorce, but still relying on whatever money her husband was sending her and whatever strangers would kind of give her. So it's sort of understandable that she would go for security. And, and, you know, there's speculation that she wasn't really like in any of these relationships in a romantic way, that she was a more pragmatic person who was sort of like social climber and just wanted someone to take care of her. Um, So by the time she meets the Prince of Wales, she's actually more interested in the fact that he's the Prince of Wales. And she, you know, despite the fact that she seemed to be pretty dismissive of London society and kind of hostile to England in general, she became kind of enamored of the idea of royalty and wanted to meet him. And she actually became friends with his mistress at the time who, you know, would invite Wallace and her husband to socialize with them. And eventually it shifted where Wallace kind of became, took the place of the mistress. Um, and Edward started paying more attention to her. But interestingly, you know, they both adamantly denied always that they had had any sort of romantic relationship prior to her divorce. Like they were obviously in an interest, like a unconventional relationship. And Edward was obviously in love with her, but some people have speculated that perhaps she viewed this whole situation as sort of like a last fun fling before she turned 40, you know? Like, she was like 38 at this point. And she thought, hey, like, this Prince of Wales is interested in me. Like, I'm just going to see where this goes. But she was not intending to divorce her husband. She was not really intending to be his girlfriend. Um, And it kind of, like, sort of the whole scene sort of got away from them, you know? Well, so... She actually did, when they took, they did take a vacation at some point, and she did write to somebody that they crossed the threshold from friendship to love, whatever that means. I think we can read between the lines. But by all accounts, she did not intend at first to leave her husband. She intended to maintain a menage a trois where she'd stay with her husband and have his money and security, and she'd have Edward's attentions and the gifts and perks that came along with that she never really expected that he would be devoted to her forever because as you mentioned she knew some of his other mistresses and saw how easily they had been cast aside and she wasn't willing to give up her security for the whims of a prince right and she was terribly impressed with the royal scene at the beginning but she definitely liked the attention that came along with that but 
I don't think she anticipated that Edward, as it turned out, was in it for the long haul, and he was intent on marrying her. I mean, as soon as he, and, and all of his friends, his family, the common theme that you hear is he was obsessed. He was a man possessed by her. Right, which is interesting because up until this point, his pattern had been definitely dating married women. That was sort of his type. Um, but maybe because they were safe options, like he didn't have to marry them. You know, he could see them for a while and then move on to the next one. And so everyone considered that Wallace was going to just be another in a long line of these. And as you're saying, like, he was very different around her. I think she learned very quickly that she had a hold over him. And um, she, her intent was, I'll just use this to my advantage until it's no longer an advantage. Um, r- regardless of the beginning of their relationship, however the par- she intended it to go, it became pretty clear that Edward, at least to his friends, was pretty much enamored of this woman. And his family was appalled. He, at one point, invited her to a reception at Buckingham Palace, and enra- this enraged the king. Um, the courtier, I think somebody called her a two-bit trollop. I, I forget who it was, but... He banished her and told her, you cannot bring that woman around. And at this time, Edward swore she was not his mistress, which was shocking to the people who knew otherwise because he essentially lied to the king and they told him they're definitely having an affair. He lied to you. So this caused a real strain and tension on the relationship between the king and his son because the king knew that Edward had this mistress who was highly inappropriate and not only would Edward not fess up to it, he would lie about it and insist that he was bringing her around as a friend. And he continued the affair. He took her on several holidays. At this point, the public had no idea that this was going on. And Edward's attitude was basically, I, as long as I fulfill my duties in public, I can do whatever I want in private. I can... I can spend my time with this inappropriate woman that, or, you know, a woman the public would view as inappropriate, but nobody should care as long as I'm performing my role as the Prince of Wales in public. So in 1936, when the king began to decline, Queen Mary summoned Edward to Sandringham, and his father was quite ill, and apparently they had a conversation about Wallace there, and, you know, she begged him to give her up at this time because it was pretty clear that the king was going to die, and he, that's what he did. He died on January 20th of 1936. And Edward immediately starts breaking protocol. He watched his own proclamation um, inside Buckingham Palace. And you can see Wallace sitting there in the window next to him. So he had no intention of giving her up at this time. And immediately he starts breaking the rules. Um, but again, going back to the public, the public hopes were pretty high. The public thought, you know, Prince Charming is going to take the throne and England is going to usher into this new, we're post-World War One. we're going to usher into this new golden era. And they had no idea what was going on behind the scenes. Um, the courtiers that did know what was going on were starting to get pretty worried um, because it was really clear that he was so involved with her that he had no desire to do anything else. But, you know, to be fair to Wallace, by all accounts and everything that I read, she she was apparently good for him personally. She tried to get him to do his job. She would encourage him to read the papers that he was supposed to read. She would encourage him to go to the events he was supposed to 
go to, but ultimately he just, he really had no interest in it. And she gets a lot of the blame for that. But I think at least in the beginning, she, she really did try to encourage him to be a good king. But to others in the know, they just thought this woman had completely taken over and started to, I think Stanley Baldwin remarked that his infatuation had obliterated part of his mind. Um, as time went on, he just became less and less concerned with his duties. He stopped reading the uh, papers in the box, the red box. It's on the, if you watch The Crown, you'll see Queen Elizabeth going through it. But he just, he stopped reading the papers altogether and he would let Wallace read them and she would read them and advise him on problems in the company of others and he would applaud her, how smart she was. And this was just a shocking breach of security. Um, and especially because even at this time, she was alleged to have some pro-Nazi leanings. So this was especially concerning. Eventually, the um, courtiers would stop giving him truly sensitive information because they were worried that he, he wouldn't be able to keep it to himself, that he would tell Wallace anything that he learned. And just going back to who she was, she was not just his girlfriend. She's not even a British subject. She's keeping company that's not entirely wholesome and they 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 couldn't be sure that anything he learned wouldn't get passed out into the world immediately just because she she hadn't proven that she was any sort of paragon of discretion um so again they cut him off from the truly sensitive information they put him under surveillance and they had his phone tapped and wallace was also under surveillance so they were starting to get a little bit worried about the situation. But even though all of this was going on, Edward was still intent on marrying Wallace, even though she was still married. Um, nobody could quite believe that he was really that intent on going through with it. And the public, again, was still largely unaware of the relationship. Um, she, she was married, I just want to point out, she was married all the way through the abdication. So at no time in this, in this, um, specific year, this 326 days that we're talking about here, was she a free woman? So this just continued to be highly inappropriate. And it didn't matter as that summer preparations are underway for his coronation, he decides he's going to take Wallace on a yacht cruise from the Adriatic to the Bosphorus. And he was entirely indiscreet about it. He and Wallace spent time on the yacht in full view of the press and the world became aware of the affair. Um, he also behaved badly in other ways on that trip. Um, I, I, it involves romping naked in a Turkish bath and being, you know, skipping out on um, diplomatic meetings he was supposed to be taking. So not only is he being photographed with this inappropriate woman, this married woman, he's also not performing the duties that he's supposed to be performing. So this is the first public indication that he may not be cut out for the job. At this time, the British press is still trying to keep this somewhat quiet, but the American press started reporting heavily on the affair. Again, you know, Wallace was, before she was a London socialite, she was an American socialite. And so the Brit the American press was pretty interested in this. Um, but the, you know, Again, going back to the timing here, this is pre-internet, so British people continued to be somewhat unaware of what was happening. Um, and the, again, Stanley Baldwin, the prime minister, he, he urged Edward to conceal the affair. He thought, you know, if we could just keep this quiet a little bit longer, um, you know, you can move forward with the coronation. Let's just try to keep some stability going here. But... 
Edward refused. Um, friends and insiders actually at this point thought he'd gone insane. And, and there's no other way to say that. I mean, they, they thought, I think somebody thought they were going to have to lock him up. I mean, he just, he, he wouldn't, he wouldn't have a reasonable conversation with anybody. He wouldn't consider alternatives. He, he wanted to be out there in the world with Wallace on his arm and he didn't care that she was married and he didn't care that she was on her second marriage. Because again, going back to the teachings of the Church of England, it wasn't that she was divorced. It was more that her husbands that she divorced were still alive. So essentially, they considered her through church, church teachings at this time, she still had two husbands. So she was by no means an available woman. And I, I kind of want to point out through all of this, you know, nobody really stopped and asked Wallace, hey, what do you want? Like, you know, there's this assumption that he wants to marry her and she'll get divorced. But she, this entire time, is maintaining that she doesn't want to get divorced, that she wants to remain married to her husband. She doesn't really want to marry the king. I think unless, because they think they know at this point that if they are to get married, then it's questionable whether he's going to be king. And, you know, by this point, even if she started out as a little bit cold on the whole British scene, Wallace is very into the idea of being royal, right? Like, she's very interested in being Queen Wallace. So I think they did, there was a remark that at one point she said, well, if you can't be the king of England, maybe you can still be the emperor of India. Right. And so, you know, <laughs> it's, it's starting to become this big scandal, but also... Between the two of them, this is where we start to see a bit of a disconnect between what they think that they want. And, you know, and we'll, I could talk about it more in a minute when we get through the whole aftermath of everything. But well, what's, what I will say is that, you know, initially he, he was he was the first one. He wanted to marry her. And for a long time, she kind of held him off and she was really unsure. And she, you know, she wrote letters to her aunt saying, I, I don't think this is a good idea. I should just stay in, in the marriage I'm in. You know, her husband by this point was pretty well publicly embarrassed, but he again, he was a British subject, so it was sort of almost like an honor, or it could be viewed that well, way from a societal perspective of, you know, here, could, my king, have my wife. He, he was pretty embarrassed, but he, would, he wouldn't have divorced her over it. Well, there's some speculation, too, like that they, because of this whole nature of like, like you just said, here, king, have my wife, that, you know, he was sort of they were questioning whether he was somehow blackmailing the prince into all of this too. But but also um, publicly as well, uh, Simpson was also having an affair. So he very quickly after divorce, Wallace married one of her childhood friends that and they had already been having an affair at this point. So, you know, it's kind of this messy thing of like Edward and Wallace and then Ernest Simpson and this other woman, Mary, having an affair themselves. And deciding that they would also like to be married. But at the time, divorce law was also really tricky in that you couldn't really prove that you wanted to get a divorce. Like if you somehow appeared to want a divorce, it was really legally difficult to get it. So they also had to kind of be very careful publicly how they approached it because they didn't want to appear in any way to be all colluding together to like say, hey, you divorce your wife and I'll marry her and then you can be free to marry this other woman. Like if there was any idea that they had done that, then legally speaking, not, none of them could get a divorce. Yeah, and that's why for the longest time they insisted that there was no affair going on. And this is the point when you kind of see that's bullshit. It's happening. Well, the they were definitely aware. in a relationship, but I think, I mean, it's – no one ever really knows. It's all speculation. They always adamantly denied they had a sexual relationship before this point. But, you know, it, 
we will never truly know whether they did or not, but it's, it's true that she was considered, you know, in everything but actuality to be his mistress, wife, whatever. Well, I will say on their yacht trip that we just covered, apparently they were photographed in a few instances in quite intimate positions. So Mm -hmm. from the public perspective, it looks like the king is having an affair with a married woman. This is starting to become a problem. So the, um, again, up until this point, it, it wasn't that well known in England. So the government was working to keep it under control. The press, the papers, the papers at this time, I mean, we're not talking about, you know, the, what we talked about with Queen Elizabeth, the invasive press. I mean, they would ask the palace, what should I not report on? It was a much more communal relationship. They worked really, really hard to please the palace. They they would purport things to in a flattering light, and they would purposefully keep things out of the papers that would make the monarchy look bad. Um, but it got to the point where they, they couldn't do that anymore. And, and part of the reason is you start to see this rise of tabloid journalism. We're not talking about respected papers. We're talking about the Daily Mail starts to print an edition and the Sunday Mirror and all, all, all of that. You know, we're starting to see tabloids. So on this is where the timeline gets really, really interesting. This has all been taking place since January, well, well before January, but the king died in January and Edward is proclaimed king. And this starts to ramp up over the spring, summer, and fall. And on November 13th, 1936, Edward is warned that the press is going to break their silence. So whispers have already been out there. The American press has been reporting on this, but the British press is going to break their silence. They're going to report in the papers that the king is having an affair with a twice divorced, or at this point, a (laughs) one-time divorced, married American socialite, and that he wants to marry her. On November 16th, Edward tells Baldwin, yes, I do want to marry Wallace. And if you don't let me do that, then I'll renounce the throne. Uh, Apparently, he told Queen Mary the same thing that evening. She refused to meet Wallace and asked him to remember his duty. Uh, I read one thing that said she all but begged him to remember what what his duty was and to not throw away everything for that woman. That woman. (laughs) Yeah, that woman. And he replied, all that matters is our happiness. On November 17th, he told his brother Bertie, who was known as Prince Albert at the time, the future King George VI, um, he was devastated and did not feel up to the task ahead of him. And we'll talk about that a little bit. But he, he didn't want the throne. He didn't want to be king. And I think he was really disappointed in his brother that his brother would just so almost cavalierly give up the throne. We'll refer you to the king's speech for yes, more on that. <laughs> that is an excellent movie if you'd like to get into his mindset. Um, then he started telling his friends in the government Some of them encouraged him to wait until after the coronation. You know, they thought maybe once you're king, once you're truly the king, you've you've been crowned before God, we can deal with all of this. He didn't want to wait. Uh, Some encouraged him to do what's known as a morganatic marriage, meaning that Wallace would not be queen and any children that they had together would not take the throne Edward wasn't really thrilled with this possibility, but it was a path to keeping the throne and getting what he wanted. So he did ask Baldwin to consider it. Uh, He was 
eventually pretty much shot down. I think I think some people were in Parliament were for this, but it didn't really solve the problem of having a two times divorced American on the throne. So even though she wouldn't officially be queen, that we were talking semantics at that point. Um, mm-hmm. She'd be with him in every picture. She'd be sitting next to him on the throne. So on November 27th, that idea was officially rejected. On no, December 1st, uh, the Bishop Alfred Blunt gave a sermon where apparently he expressed the wish that Edward would show more awareness of needing God's grace. And so that was the point where the church knew the public knew, the papers knew, the government knew, the secret was out. The Times went so far as to declare that a woman with two living husbands was unfit to be queen. And the public was just, by this point, completely shocked. I mean, we're talking about a, a little less than a month's time here, and, and the press speculation over the course of that just reaches a fever pitch, and the public is completely shocked. Wallace starts receiving hate mail, and she had stones thrown through her windows, so things aren't progressing the way Edward may have wanted. Um, on December 3rd, she left for France. And part of that was to get her out of the country because there were starting to be some concerns for her safety, but also some of that was also to get her out of the country so that she could pursue the divorce because, as you just said, Edward couldn't be seen as actively working on her behalf to get a divorce. Mm-hmm. So it was everyone's best interest if she would get out of the country. So she left for France. And Edward told her, I shall never give you up when she left. Never gonna give you up. <laughs> that's pretty much that's pretty much how it went. And it's interesting to note, you know, we brought this up before, but um Winston Churchill wasn't at this time the Prime Minister, but he did support Edward and likely this is just going back to the fact I just thought this was interesting. He's an ardent mar he was apparently an ardent monarchist. And his wife would often say that he was the last believer in the divine right of kings. So he didn't want to see an abdication. He felt like Edward should stay on the throne because that was what he was supposed to do. And he advised him to endure and delay. Basically, again, just saying, wait for the coronation, get the crown, let all of this blow over. And then when you're king, maybe it won't be as big of a deal. Right. But Edward refused to do that and at this point it's pretty clear he had decided to abdicate um even wallace begged him not to apparently she sent him telegrams she was calling him telling him you know don't do this but probably that was mostly to protect her own reputation she didn't want to be seen as the american woman who drove the british king from his throne plus she wanted to be queen Um, I, yeah, and I, I think at this point, though, to be honest, I I think she wouldn't have minded being queen, but I think she didn't want, you know, again, going back to hate mail and stones being thrown through her window a week before this, she, did, she didn't want to be seen as the reason for the abdication. Um, I think, you know, I think if anything, she was maybe a little bit afraid of what she had gotten herself into. Um, and in any case, so by December 7th, the public and parliament were totally against Edward because at this point he's just basically seen as willing to abandon his subjects for passion. The opposite of the Prince Charming that everybody was so thrilled to be taking the throne, you know, at the beginning of the year. Um, On December 10th, they signed the instrument of abdication. And on December 11th, he addressed the nation via radio broadcast 
famously saying, I have found it impossible to carry the heavy burden of responsibility and to discharge my duties as king as I would wish to do without the help and support of the woman I love. So he basically told the world, I am not going to be king because I want to be with Wallace Simpson. And that's the, that's the reason that everybody remembers when we talk about the abdication. And that's probably why. That's probably why it happened. But or, I have a couple I mean, of other reasons that I would like to talk about. Yeah, and I, I, I know I, those are – there are obviously some different issues too, but it – I think this one is obviously, like you're saying, the most famous reason that people think of when they think of the abdication. And it's probably likely that he took it as an excuse, right? I mean, like, because we've been talking this whole time, like, why not wait until you're king? Like, you know, you can do basically whatever you want. No one's really going to stop you, right? Like, you're the king. They're not going to kick you off the throne. Like, because as we're seeing through this whole abdication crisis, they they don't really enjoy doing that. Um, But, you know, maybe he saw her as a way to get out of it. You know, and I, I think, I think it's a lot of those things. I think he, and we'll come back to this at the end. But I think ultimately he just, he, he. I think if he was as obsessed with her as everybody said he was, then he truly felt like he couldn't live without her. And it, it was made very, very clear to him: you can't have both. You can't have the crown and the woman. You, you have to pick. And I think she. It was an easy decision because he was completely enamored of her and and also not that enamored of the crown. Right. Because, I mean, he could have her and be king. He just couldn't do it, like, as her, as his wife, right? Right. Yeah. So. It's worked for a lot of monarchs throughout history to just have a mistress. (laughs) It has. I mean, and many of them weren't necessarily all that discreet about it, but for whatever reason... He didn't want to go down that path. He was he was pretty intent on marrying her. And I think a lot of that had to do with more to the fact that he wanted to keep her. He didn't want her to be able to leave him. Right. Because we've seen, you know, for a woman who managed to get two divorces, it was pretty difficult <laughs> to do back then. Um, so a- another reason I wanted to discuss, and this is this is a little bit more of a conspiracy theory than anything, but there is some speculation Edward was, pushed off the throne because of his Nazi sympathies. And a lot of this came to light much later after all of this, but there are some historians out there who feel that there was a conspiracy within the British government to get rid of Edward before he could do any major damage. So I'm going to run through the Nazi problem for you and tell you why I think that's a little bit of a conspiracy theory, not necessarily a conspiracy. Um, It's no secret that Edward was known to favor Germany. Um, You know, you have to remember his, his family came from German stock and his mother was a German princess. So he, he had several German relations. Um, A lot of that went to the wayside uh, during world war one um, the family was notably on opposing sides in World War I with their German relations. And as we previously mentioned, they changed their German name of Saxe, Coburg, and Gotha to Windsor. It was, you know, they, there was a cartoon that I saw where it shows um, George V sweeping 
all the German affiliations of the family out with the trash and saying, good riddance. Um, because anti-German sentiment was so strong that um, the family did whatever they could to distance themselves. And at, during World War I, Edward was pretty anti-German. He, he was pretty clear about that. But after the war and things started to settle down, he started to come to see Germany as a victim of the post-war treaties. And he wasn't alone in that. His mother believed that as well. Um, a lot of society and um, aristocracy in Europe started to kind of feel bad for Germany. Um, he started to see them as a victim of the forced disarmament they were supposed to do. And um, he thought, you know, communism was on the rise and Germany would serve as a good bulwark against communism. And he also saw them as a model of what society could look like under a progressive dictatorship, and that would be after 1933 when Hitler came to power. Um, he criticized the British Foreign Office for being too one-sided in regards to the Third Reich and was, by all accounts, pretty unconcerned with Hitler's reported violence and treatment of Jews, although Edward was pretty well known to be anti-Semitic. Uh, I don't know that he necessarily supported the Holocaust, but he made a lot of comments about Jews that were not great. Um, and he wasn't that worried about German rearmament. So by the 30s, he, he wants to see Germany as an ally and not an, an enemy. Um, he was supportive of a proposal to send a goodwill mission to Germany. He was convinced that peace with Germany was the way forward. And again, I think we have to go back to World War One a little bit here. It's World War One. It was the war to end all wars, right? It, it, it was traumatic. Kind of Brit scared the hell out of everybody. Yes, and, and the British had suffered heavy, heavy losses, and n just nobody wanted another war. And Edward was of the mind that Hitler was doing good things in Germany, and he, he felt like they should work with him. He didn't see them as an enemy. And even, you know, even George V, his father, was really didn't see them as worth going after. He was convinced that they should remain neutral. Um, right, because this is still, I mean, let's keep in mind, we're talking about these attitudes that they're having like fairly early in the 30s at this point. Like this is before Hitler decides he wants Poland, you know? So right. they're not they're right. not maintaining this stance like and watching Europe fall. Although Edward had some interesting comments after Hitler decided he wanted Czechoslovakia for himself. So yeah. I mean, at this time, I think what you're starting to see is Germany is clearly starting to rebuild from the ashes and a lot of people are starting to get nervous about what they're seeing. And I think because what they're seeing, they're building an army. They're, yeah. they're positioning themselves as an aggressor. And a lot of people kind of took a wait and see approach again, because the wounds of world war one were just so fresh and nobody wanted to start another war. And so that, that's this idea of let's just take a neutral stance and wait and see was very, yeah, popular this is still the, the era where everybody thought appeasement could work. Right. Yes, I mean, no, and nobody, nobody knew really what was happening in Germany, and this is this is before the camps started and all of that. Um, Edward was pretty open about his admiration of the Third Reich, and um, in 1936, he was said to have prevented an aggressive British response to Hitler's occupation of, of the Rhineland. So it wasn't so much that he wanted to remain neutral, but he 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 admired or didn't care about 
the various things that Third Reich were doing. All of that, so, and that, that would have mattered except for in 1936, he abdicated. In 1937, after the abdication, he accepted an invitation, now known as the Duke of Windsor. He accepted an invitation to visit Hitler's Germany. And the Nazis turned it into an official progress. They took him all around the country and took advantage of the publicity. They had cameras on him. Um, they had this the was Duke. like a propaganda coup. Yes. They had the Duke and Duchess because they were married. Uh, Edward had married Wallace Simpson by this point. Um, it, they were traveling in Hitler's personal train. The visit was covered extensively by the German press. The coverage highlighted the Duke's pro-German and anti-communist views. He was captured on film several times doing the um, Heil Hitler salute. Back home, this was extensively downplayed by the British press. The court was pretty angry at how pro-German this appeared, and they also worried that he was going to extend this onto the U.S. and encourage... Uh, the U.S. They didn't want the U.S. to start taking a pro-German stance, but it didn't matter. He didn't go to the U.S. because the U.S. press criticized him for fraternizing with Hitler. You know, and this is the difference between Edward and his brother, who at this point is George VI, is that they both wanted peace. Again, you mentioned appeasement. That was an official policy. They just, they weren't going to antagonize Hitler, but they also weren't going to go and make official peace treaties at this point. Um, Edward <laughs> went so far as to personally appeal to Hitler uh, as soldier to soldier. You know, hey, we, we don't want another war. You know, we both fought in World War One, or we remember what it was like. Let's not let this progress that far. Um, it, it didn't matter. Uh, the Nazi-Soviet pact was signed and Germany invaded Poland. Edward, at this point, was convinced that if he had remained king, there would never be a war. But again, like I said, he wasn't the king. George VI was. and um, also, I guess he thought they were just going to stop at France. I, yeah, it's hard to say. Again, you know, a lot of this is put together by conversations he had with friends, letters he was writing. You know, again, the video footage that there is of his visit to Germany was cut by the Germans. So it Right. I mean it was edited to look really pro German and it's hard to say what really I mean at the very least whatever it was, you know, whatever his position about Germany, it was deeply stupid to even it, go. I think that's a really good point is all of this was just deeply stupid. So by this point we've got um Germany invading Poland and war breaks out or, you know, it's, it's coming. Um, and so the Duke was made a major general and he was sent to France to liaise with the French high command, um, you know, try to maintain the alliances and boost morale. And he was pretty successful at that relatively for in his way. You know, I mean, there was still some faux pas here and there, but um, he was generally successful, and he and he and Wallace at this time were living in France. But on May 10th, Hitler invaded France, so Edward and Wallace fled to Spain. Um, this raised eyebrows at the time because the Spanish allegiances were somewhat murky. Uh, the Spanish aristocracy shared a lot of the views of Edward about Hitler, 
in that maybe the Third Reich's not all that bad. You know, maybe they have the right idea here. So a lot of people thought it was strange that Edward and Wallace went to Spain. Um, but in any case, while in Spain, apparently they kept pretty anti-British company. And the people that they were associating with were known Nazi sympathizers. So that's where you start to see this real worry form that, oh no, Edward is hanging out with Nazis. Mm -hmm. um, in 1940, the German ambassador in The Hague claimed that the Duke had leaked the Allied plans for the defense of Belgium. He denied it, um, although in that documentary I was watching, you know, they said he, he, was a, he was a drinker and he had a big mouth when he drank, so it's entirely possible that he didn't he didn't intend to give away state secrets, but but maybe they should he, just stop telling them to him because yes, he's a chatty drunk. It's, it's, he just he you know it, it slipped out. Um, yeah. Hitler, meanwhile, was convinced that he could use the Duke to divide and rule Britain. They um, actually went so far as to make plans to try to get him to come back to Spain and either convince him or kidnap him and convince him to support Germany. And they started spreading rumors that Churchill was going to have him assassinated. It's, it's hard to say where Edward fell in this equation, but he had enough pro-Nazi leanings that Hitler wanted to use him to his advantage. And Churchill warned him about expressing his views publicly. Um, it's also, it's not unreasonable to at least speculate that Hitler thought given his pro-German leanings, that he could set him up as a puppet king. Mm -hmm. And, and, and it that, was pretty well In addition to that, that, also the idea of kidnapping royalty to sort of convince the government to go along with Germany was something they had already contemplated trying in, like, the Netherlands and, you know, other small Europe. So it was, th this plan had been something that the Nazis were known to be doing. Yeah, and I think, I think you just also see him associating with no Nazi sympathizers and the Germans are thinking, oh, we can just use this to our advantage. And it, it was worrisome enough that, you know, the British basically said, okay, we've got to stop giving this guy information and we've got to get him out of the way. So Churchill ordered him back to Britain. And while all of this is going on, just as a side note, every time Churchill would order Edward to come back to Britain, he would try to extract demands from him. Right. So he would try to say, well, give me more money or we're going to call Wallace Her Royal Highness. Or, that HRH, man, they oh, really that wanted a, that. That was Ooh. a sticking point. But, um, you know, Edward just either he didn't see the severity of the situation or he didn't care and he he was only looking out for himself. Um, you know, he didn't care that he was damaging British interests and attempts war to war effort yeah he didn't care he just he was only thinking out for himself so the solution is that they sent him to the bahamas and he became governor of the bahamas um essentially the idea was they're going to keep him out of the way where he could do the least amount of damage and at first he thought well that's fine i'll just spend all my time in florida um but he was actually at the beginning at least not permitted to visit America because the fear was that he would encourage American isolationism. Because again, you know, at this point, World War II has been going on for quite some time, but the, the Americans are not involved. Right. So the fear was that with his pro-German sentiments and his loose mouth, you know, he was a loose cannon. They didn't want him running around America telling everybody, this war is such a mistake. Stay out of it. 
by all accounts, his time in the Bahamas wasn't great. Although I did read something that said that as far as governors go of these island nations, he actually didn't do that badly. Um, but he spent as little time there as he could and he was very frustrated. He was well aware at the time that he was sort of being shuffled off to, you know, a corner of the world where nobody could find him. And he, he felt like he was being kept back. Uh, although I, I don't know what he thought he would have done, but he, it wasn't a very happy time for him in the Bahamas, but he couldn't, he couldn't rile up the Nazis from the Bahamas. So that's no, because the Nazis were too them. busy sinking ships in the vicinity. So Yeah, so it's actually interesting because as the day that they sailed for the Bahamas, uh, the Nazis started bombing Britain. And what's interesting about that is he's recorded as having encouraged the bombing of Britain, convinced that eventually it would bring peace. So he thought that if the British public were bombed enough, they would, of course, get tired of that and seek a peace treaty with Germany. Never mind the fact that these are the people, these are your subjects, that you were supposed to be their king. You're encouraging Germany to drop bombs on them. I mean, I just think that's crazy. In reality, he probably had no real concept of the barbarism of the Nazis. And even decades later, he, he said he never thought Hitler was such a bad chap. Yeah. So I think this. I think ultimately this goes back to what you said about him being just deeply stupid. I think he was just naive. The he admired what they were trying to do. It was almost like I read. I read one thing that said it was almost like the latest in political chic. Like it wasn't so much about the policies, but he liked the way they dressed and he liked the order and the way that everything looked on camera, and it was it just appealed to his fashion sense, and so. And I think there's also an element of racism, too. I mean, like, he was a known anti-Semitic. And so, you know, decades later, when the full knowledge of the Holocaust is known, I mean, this is not something that he would have been unaware of, saying that he never thought Hitler was such a bad chap. I mean, all that says to me is that he honestly, like, heard about the Holocaust and, like, the Nazi extermination of Jews and was like, eh. Like, because he didn't view Jews highly enough to, like, you know, see that as a problem. Yeah, he just, he wasn't all that concerned about it. And I think it's tempting from a modern perspective now that everything that we know about what the Nazis were up to, the Holocaust, the just atrocities committed during that time, I think it's kind of, I think everybody looks back and breathes a little bit of a sigh of relief and says, oh, well, thank God he wasn't on the throne because God knows what he would have encouraged everybody to do. Um... I think that's a really tempting revisionist look at things. But if we just go back to the timeline that we were discussing, he abdicated in 1936. Mm -hmm. The war, in, in hindsight, you can see the war coming, but it hadn't started and everybody was still hoping to avoid a war. So I don't think that there was this grand conspiracy to push him off the throne to prevent a war that happened anyway. Right, but I do think that there was some real relief that it had, in fact, happened given his sympathies with the Nazis. You know? Yes, but I don't think that's the same as saying one of the secret reasons for the abdication, and this is a theory out there that some people have, is that there were people in Parliament looking at Edward and saying, we got to get rid of him because of Germany. And I just, I don't think that that's, 
valid. Right. Like the fact that he was a security risk, the fact that he had problematic views even decades later after this war, the fact that he, you know, had to kind of be shunted off to the Bahamas. You're right in that it's probably really tempting to be like, hmm, something was going on here. But like, it's probably more of just like a happy accident that he was put out of the way before any of that got really going. Right. But not, it wasn't the reason for it. Like, it's not the reason they pushed him off the throne, but it's it's probably kind of a good thing that that happened anyway. Yeah, because you're right. The timeline doesn't make sense in that concept. Yeah. So the last thing I wanted to talk about, and we've kind of touched on this a little bit as we've been having our discussion, is just the personality problem. Well, he's kind of a dick. <laughs> yeah, and I just think ultimately it comes down to the fact that he was just so unsuited for the throne. Um and I'm just gonna I'm just gonna tell you about a few things that I read that stuck out to me. And I kind of as I was reading this biography, I kept thinking, well, that wasn't gonna work. Oh, that wasn't gonna work. Um, so in his youth, he wrote several letters to his mistress, one of his mistresses, Frida Dudley Ward, um, who he was involved with for a while. And um, it offers a lot of insight into his personality. And I think that they actually did make a book of the letters that he wrote to her because. They give so much insight into who he was as a person. I mean, he was a snob. He he. It took joy in getting um, humiliated and humbled by his the women in his life. A lot of people thought that was why Wallace was so successful with him because she she could just reduce him to tears, and he seemed to enjoy it. Um, but. There was something that stuck out with me is he complained when his brother John died. So this was the youngest child of George V and Mary of Tech. And he was disabled and probably autistic and he had a lot wrong with him. Um, and he, he died. And Edward complained that the court had to go into the morning and just as the war is over, which cuts parties and everything right out. Hmm. So he was more upset with the fact that he couldn't go to any parties than he was about the fact that his brother died. And... He also wrote in these letters that he felt that the days of kings and princes were past and monarchies were out of date, even if it sounded, quote, Bolshevik to say that. So at the time, you know, we're seeing the fall of several empires. The Bolsheviks murdered the Russian royal family. There's conflicts all over the Middle East and Africa. The royals are starting to worry about the epidemic of revolution, but I think Edward was kind of looking at all of this and thinking, yeah, that's probably not a bad idea. You know, why do we do this anyway? Um, he began to resent his destiny and the conformity, tradition, and customs he would be forced to uphold. He called royal ceremony good propaganda and referred to it as stunting, um, which I thought was kind of funny because that's a phrase that's made its way back into the yeah. modern vernacular. <laughs> Um, in 1919, he told his mistress that if not for her, he would shoot or drown himself to escape from the life which has become so, so foul and sad and depressing and miserable. So he wasn't really looking forward to the job laid out ahead of him. Um, publicly, you know, as we talked about before, he did his part. He was really great with the public, but internally he chafed against the role and um, basically he was beloved everywhere except Buckingham Palace. Um, he internally was accused of eroding the mystery of monarchy. He felt that they couldn't maintain the aloofness, but it was clear to everyone 
so invested in upholding these traditions that he was just determined to erode the protocols and and that barrier of the monarchy and the people. Um, the myth he couldn't maintain the mystery. Mm-hmm. I mean, he was the guy who was like, "I should be allowed to go out in public without my shirt on." Like, just chill, dude. Which was just <laughs> so shocking to them at the time, yeah. and you know, his. I mean, this is was- this is when men like weren't supposed to go in public without a hat, right? Like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> And that was the other thing. He didn't dress the way he was supposed to dress. Apparently, he dressed way too casually. He just didn't take anything seriously. His his father was worried about him, saying he would ruin himself within 12 months. Once he And he wasn't wrong. <laughs> that was quite prophetic. Um, but, you know, to the public, he was a star. He loved the attention. But he didn't like the ceremony of it all. And he had no interest in diplomacy. He went on several tours after the First World War, um, and he just hated everything official that he had to do. He like he would like going out and meeting the people, but he didn't want to shake hands with diplomats and go through all of that fake ceremony, smiling for the cameras and puffing yourselves up. Um, at one point, he wrote to his private secretary, Godfrey Thomas, quote, Christ, how I loathe my job now and all the press puffed empty success. I feel I'm through with it and long to die. For God's sake, don't breathe a word of this to a soul. No one else must know how I feel about my life and everything. You probably think from this that I ought to be in the madhouse already. I do feel such a bloody little shit. So I think he knew that his attitude wasn't acceptable, but he he couldn't really help himself. Um, and all of he this was again, pretty was emotional. Just, he was you know? pretty emotional, and he just what the way the. The best I could describe it after everything I read is that he he liked the lifestyle. He was a snob. He didn't want to go work in a factory or really hang out with people he considered beneath him. But he he didn't want to do anything to earn the lavish luxury lifestyle. He just felt like he it was owed to him, but he didn't owe anybody anything else. Well, Um, I think it's like it was his birthright, but he didn't view it as his duty, right? Like he felt like it was his right of birth, but like he didn't need to do anything to maintain that. Like it was a one-way relationship, you know? And, you know, again, we talked about this before, but this was all aided by the press. Um, You know, they favored monarchy and sold newspapers off the positive coverage Um, His popularity was boosted by the radio and cinema newsreels. The press at the time was pretty much uniformly deferential, respectful, and supportive of the monarchy. So they really fed this machine publicly of this um, prince who was just the right man for the job. I mean, when he was proclaimed king, he was the most popular man in the world, and it was said that there had never been a prince better prepared for the throne. Winston Churchill said, Your Majesty's name will shine in history as the bravest and best beloved of all the sovereigns who have Mm. worn the island crown. Um, But this this was pretty much in line with the thinking at the time, you know, except for the people that knew better. So everybody was pretty excited. They thought they were going to have this golden king on the throne. And you know, like I said a little while ago, at first he was pretty motivated and intended to take on his responsibilities, but he he didn't have any actual work ethic to follow up on that. And he, you know, he was distracted by Wallace Simpson, but I think if he had been more 
invested in the duty and the role, as you put it, he might have been able to put that off to the side a little more. Um, in any case, to wrap this quick piece up, um, he did tell his brother, the Duke of Kent, after he abdicated that he had known for two years that he could not stick to being king, that he could never tolerate the restrictions, the etiquette, and the loneliness. All right, so those are the reasons that I think more or less um, were behind the abdication. And I want to talk just a little bit about the aftermath because we did do a series on Queen Elizabeth and we did do Princess Margaret, um, or at least her marital issues. And what you see here is that this abdication caused lasting damage to the monarchy. Um, the effects were felt as late as the 1990s when you look at the marriage of Charles, the Prince of Wales, and Diana, and the the woman he was not forced to marry, but societally maybe forced to marry. And the reigns of George VI and Elizabeth II can, quote, be seen as an attempt to exercise the ghost of abdicate, abdication. Um, so, you know, we mentioned when Edward told George VI that he was going to abdicate, he was devastated. And his biggest fear was that he would not, on his shoulders, be able to sustain the monarchy let alone restore it. And so basically what happened when he took the throne is everyone, including the press and the government, basically banded together to create him in the image of his father, who was a well-beloved king. And they obliterated the memory of the Duke of Windsor. Um, Edward was left out of newspaper stories. He was exiled from the country. And he was also ostracized from his own family. They weren't for the longest time, permitted to attend official gatherings. Um, Edward and Wall Wallace didn't officially spend any time with the royal family until the 60s. Well, they didn't want anything to do with her. So. No, they didn't want anything to do with her, but it was also this idea of we have to pretend she doesn't exist because if we, if we acknowledge her, then we have to acknowledge what actually happened and let's just try to all move forward and forget that it happened. Um... They did, so, and, and you know, we talked about this a little bit off and on, but, you know, Edward and Wallace did marry once her divorce was complete. But, again, she was never accepted by the family. And we talked about this a little bit, but she was denied the HRH. So when Edward abdicated, he became the Duke of Windsor. And by marriage, she became the Duchess of Windsor. But he was His Royal Highness, the Duke of Windsor. She was the Duchess of Windsor. She did not get to use the HRH. And that was a real sore spot for them for the rest of their lives. Um, and and, and that, that it goes back to this idea of they, they, they weren't going to accept her into the royal family. They weren't going to give her the grace of that title because not only did they see her as a, a huge reason behind the crisis that arose out of the abdication, but again, it, it, she's... It, um, George VI took the view that she's she's not a member of this family. But also, if they give her the HRH, what does that say about the abdication? Because if they're willing to give her a royal title, then what's the point of the abdication in the first place, right? Like, what's the difference between an HRH and queen, really? You know? And that I was mean, a big reason behind the reason why they never gave it to her. Yeah. I mean, because um, really, I mean, the interesting thing that I think about is like, 
people always say like, oh, Queen Elizabeth became queen by an accident of history because of the abdication. But it's entirely likely that she would have been queen anyway, because at the time of the abdication, Edward is 40, Wallace is like 38. The likelihood of them having children is pretty slim, you know, and they never did have children. Um, You know, it's possible that Wallace couldn't have children um, due to some health issues she had earlier in her life. So it's entirely possible that even without an abdication, we would still have a Queen Elizabeth, right? Yeah, no, it's true. Um, and I mean, but we... But it's know. that it's that we got her in addition to this, you know, mess of the abdication. Right. And that's what you see. George VI, his reign was very stable, almost designed that way to just be this comforting reminder to the public that this didn't have to be such a... Um, source of agitation and then you see Elizabeth when she takes the throne at 25 and the way she reacted when her sister wanted to marry someone who was inappropriate and it was you're right we can't allow this to happen because we just went through this we have to we have to maintain order above all else right because everybody's got a little bit of like PTSD over this whole thing you know and they almost took down the monarchy it's funny because as the further we are removed from what actually happened um one thing I, I, as I was reading, you know, this story, it's sort of morphed into this kind of romantic legend. And I think a lot of people see it as a love story and what he gave up for love. Um, and some people yeah. even are tempted, like it's tempting. <laughs> I, I've seen a lot of sources that would say, well, you know, oh, it's not, it had nothing to do with her. It was, it was Edward was so weak and he just really loved her and he would have been a bad king. And then when you see this idea of this like a conspiracy to push him off the throne because of the Nazis, I think I think that's a really um, modern view of what actually happened because I think it's really hard for us to think of divorce as, as the horror that they did, right? But mm-hmm. the stigma of divorce was huge. And, you know, Elizabeth and her father they had to sort of uphold the sanctity of marriage. And, you know, like I said, we just, we saw that with Margaret and Peter Townsend. And it's I think it's really hard for us to look back and say, well, that can't have been the reason. Because at, who cares if she was divorced? Like, is it really that big of a deal? But it but was. At, yeah, it really, it really, really was. And, and it came down to the fact that she just, the public, the Commonwealth, no one would ever have accepted her as queen and he was willing to give everything else up because he couldn't have the crown and the queen that he wanted. But I think it's, that's, that's really what it boiled down to. And you, and you can look at it and we talked about it, these, uh, maybe these other reasons behind it. But I think if she hadn't been in the picture, I think he probably wouldn't have abdicated. He probably wouldn't have been a great king, but yeah, he might've, not found a way to walk away. Um, I think the for me, the most tragic part of this whole story is, you know, like you were saying, it's tempting to talk about it as this grand love story, but honestly, their lives together were really sad, like after this whole thing. You know, she, you know, it's questionable whether she really wanted to marry Edward or if she wanted to be queen or, you know, if he wanted to be king or if he just wanted to be with her. Regardless of what their individual motivations were, they weren't, you know, 
there were indications by people who knew them and socialized with them that they were a very odd couple. They weren't, they didn't really seem to be in a normal romance. Like he was obsessed with her and doted on her and she was very condescending and, you know, sort of patronizing to him. And it, it seemed to be, you know, from the outside, more of like a mother-child kind of relationship than a romantic one. And um, But apparently she, all of his relationships were like that. Right. But that, but that Wallace didn't really appear to love him in the way that he loved her. And, you know, she would often um, spend time with other men and sort of ignore him at parties and kind of humiliate him publicly. And um, ultimately when he died, you know, they were living together, but he wasn't, she wasn't in the room when he died and, um, they were living in Paris at the time. But I think ultimately their story is just really sad, you know, like he lost a lot for her and, you know, it's questionable whether in the end it was worth it to him if he would have said that, but. Yeah. And I mean, I think, I think also to put a little bit of a spin on that is that he thought he was going to abdicate, go away for a couple of years come back and And they'd be over it (laughs) have some kind of public role because he did seem to really enjoy the public adoration and I don't think he was expecting the family to say you can't come back to England I mean because he was essentially exiled Mm -hmm. and you can't be a member of this family you can't have a public role you you cannot speak for us. You cannot do events for like we we want to just pretend that you don't exist. And I think which is naive on his part because absolutely. how could he do that? Because how do you if you're George the Sixth? How are you a successful king if you're constantly put next to the guy who was supposed to be king? You can't. And I just think that he never really thought that far. And I think I think also you know when you talk about their lives together being really really sad. I think. I don't know what it's like to do nothing all day, but that's what they did. They didn't do anything together. They probably just got sick of each other. (laughs) I mean, I don't know. It's hard to say, you know, they, by all accounts, all, all of his relationships were kind of weird. And I think she figured out how to be in a relationship with him that worked. I think you also have to remember he, even with the abdication, he was a very wealthy man. And I didn't even mm-hmm. get into all of his illegal currency speculation during World War II because I didn't think it was relevant to our discussion. But they also he, did a lot of like insider trading. Oh, yeah. He was so good at making Because at money, the time, that wasn't like the thing. right way. Yeah. yeah. I mean, so I think that there was, you know, same as her other marriages, there was just as much incentive to stay. I don't think she would have gone through a third divorce. I mean, I don't I don't know. You know, I think at the end of the day Well, there's no way. After knows? the whole press not like scandal over the whole abdication and to go through all that and then get married and then get divorced, can you imagine? There's no way they would do that. Yeah. I mean, I just think it doesn't really matter. To me, it's not that relevant to talk about did she really love him because he loved her enough to give up everything so he at least felt like she did I, I don't know but it's it's just it's such a crazy thing I mean you know everybody I think has heard this story because when you talk about the British succession it always comes up and when you go back and look at it I mean 326 days is ridiculous when that's not even a year and the he's made it longer than some of our presidents oh sure but like <laughs> 
you know, when you, when you read the stories about the the courtiers that were worried about his temperament and the way he was behaving, it's, it, it, in hindsight, seems inevitable that this was where this was headed. But that's the Edward problem. Yep. And I think it proves at the end of the day, you know, um, the problem, right, with passing down a title, a crown, a role through birth is you don't really know who you're going to end up with. Like these people aren't taking on the job because of qualifications or temperamental suitability. It's just because of their birth order, right? Um, Yeah, and I actually, there was a really good quote at the end of that biography that I read that um, I thought was really good. It just, it basically said, above all, the abdication crisis revealed the fundamental flaw in the system of hereditary succession Namely, that accident of birth is liable to bestow the crown on someone quite unfit to wear it. And I think that's ultimately what we saw here. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, it's, 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 it's easy to speculate. You know, you'd never know. He did ultimately abdicate over Wallace Simpson. But had that not happened, would there have been another reason um, or, or another, another scandal woman. or crisis over, yeah, another woman? Or would it have been over, you know, his... Nazi sympathies or would it have been something else, right? Like it seems from day one, he was always going to be a bit of a question under whether he could do this job. And ultimately he chose to walk away from it. So, um, and I think that's the biggest, the biggest takeaway at the end of the day is like, you know, we've listed here three ultimate problems. You know, we've got Wallace Simpson, his Nazi sympathies and his general personality. But I think it's that last one that is the biggest indication because it doesn't matter why. It's just that ultimately he chose to abdicate, right? And it's just that act is something that is not done and hasn't been done before or since. And um, that's the ultimate tell, I think, that he even considered that an option where no one else would is the biggest, I think, indicator that, you know, maybe it would have happened eventually or, you know, maybe it's it's a good thing that he wasn't king, so... And I think it just goes back to, like, the whole point of, like, why we're doing this podcast, right? Like, you and I talk all the time about why monarchy is so interesting because we're talking about people who are born into something. And it's, you know, I just said it, an accident of birth. It's not any accomplishment. They just, they got lucky. They're born into it. And then and then they maybe don't see themselves as lucky because, you know, I don't know what it's like to be told from the moment you're born that your entire life has been mapped out for you. And, you know, look at Queen Elizabeth. There's no retirement. Right. I mean, (laughs) your entire life has been mapped out for you from some ancient institution that you may personally not feel as relevant. But I think most people rise to the occasion. And if you're in a situation like Great Britain where you have – you know, they're not powerful, but they they do represent something. And most people will step up to the plate and take on that duty and choose to be there for the country. And this is just one of those instances and seems to be pretty rare, but an instance where this person wasn't capable of shouldering that burden. Or didn't want to. Yeah. I don't know, it's interesting. And, you know, like we talk about a lot with Queen Elizabeth, you know, she's been on the throne now for decades. And what what would Great Britain look like if that hadn't happened? I mean, you know, say you do have Edward on the throne 
and say he does have a child, who 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 is that person? They don't exist, you know. So you can't even fathom what that would look like. It's kind and of and even if he doesn't have a child, and but, right, and even if he doesn't have a child, and we still end up with Elizabeth. How long are we into her reign at this point, right? Like, does George the Sixth even rule at all, or does Edward? Because um, you know, Edward outlived his brother, so um, does Edward rule, and then does Elizabeth take over? You know, much later in life, you know, does she still have the same legacy? It's it's this interesting sliding doors question, right? Of what history do we end up with at that point? But that's not the history that we got, so um, it's interesting to speculate, but. This did happen, so um, yeah. So that is the Edward problem, and that's a long one. Sorry. Yeah, sorry. I tried to cut it down, but there was <laughs> so much lot. to talk about. There, it was a big, you know, for for a relatively compressed amount of time. There was a lot happening within the royal family, within the world, and so there's a lot to um, to talk about there. So yeah, um, there certainly is. Yep. Um, okay, so we will be back next time with uh, probably some royal oops, hopefully some royal gossip, and do we do we know at this point what our next topic is, or are we are we going to surprise ourselves and everyone? I think there might be a little bit of uh, House of Hanover coming your way. Ah, yes, that's correct. Um, yeah, we're gonna go even further back in history and take a a brief break from the Windsors. I think. Still relative relations. Well, they're still, yes, they're still Windsors, just not in name at this point. So, <laughs> um, okay. Well, I will talk to you next time. All right.